This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Worth a try. And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. Hello, uh, it's Cam Raslan here, your new host for Off the Ball. And uh, this week we have three wonderful pundits, two of whom are actually Leeds United fans, who, which is going to come in useful a little bit later on. But let's start with our resident Manchester United fan, the happiest man in, the, in, the, in this group here. He is Kishnan Sundaresan. Hello, hello. Uh, good to be back, guys. Great to have you. And uh, Kishnan, by the way, had a bout of COVID, but you're feeling better? Yep, significantly better. Good, good, good. Excellent. And then we have Nicholas Anil. Hi, Cam. Hi, guys. How are you doing? And you, finally, you're we have... So new, Cam. You're not so new. I mean, you're, you're relatively season by your reference to <laughs> <laughs> well as far as i'm concerned after ross i'll always be the new guy and uh, we have arvin sidhu hi everyone it's good to be here as always great to have you and in this week's very packed show we're going to be doing fa cup quarterfinals premier league uefa champions league draw a little bit of spanish league and if we have time world cup qualifiers and if we have even more time i want to do a reader's letter a listener's letter we start off with the FA Cup quarterfinal. I saw a rumour that uh, Eddie Howe is being mentioned as being uh, nominated for manager of the season, but uh, I cannot comprehend that. Patrick Vieira of Crystal Palace must surely be in the running because Crystal Palace absolutely dominated and thrashed Everton 4-0. And uh, I thought it was a magnificent performance, but it was a diabolical performance from Everton. Nicholas Let's start with Everton, please. How come an English team managed by an English manager can't defend against set pieces? If you look at their defence, I think that has been uh, one of the most mm-hmm. regressive uh, defence uh, in in the Premiership um, in a long time. Mason Holgate, Michael Keane, um, and also Ben Godfrey. Um, they were just... If you look at the goals that Crystal Palace got, the first goal... Um, you know, um, the, the goal scorer, I, I, I forgot his name, but he didn't have to move. You know, he was just stationary and was left just to direct his header. And then the the second goal was a brilliant counter-attack by Crystal Palace. Got to give them credit for that. But the third and the fourth goal, you know, um, Everton was just in no man's land completely. Um, and Lampard came out after the defeat and said that, you know, he thought Everton played well and um, Crystal Palace didn't play so well. Uh, but somehow scored four goals, uh, and I'm wondering, was he at the stadium? Did he was, was he watching the match? Because apart from the first 20 minutes, where I thought Everton were decent, um, after Crystal Palace got into their groove, uh, there was just no turning back. And every time Crystal Palace got the ball, they seemed to be able to uh, make something happen. For me, Everton's loss wasn't wasn't about them crashing out of the FA Cup, but it was more of their status, their ability to stay in the Premier League because they put out a pretty strong squad and ended up getting annihilated by this uh, Crystal Palace side. And, you know, they would be glad that, you know, they will only have the league to focus on. But on the back of this defeat, there were so many things that fundamentally went wrong for Everton. And, you know, now it goes back to reality, fighting for relegation in the league. And by the looks of it, Everton look odds on to go down, you know, even in their victory against um, Newcastle last week, I thought they were kind of fortunate to get away with that because Newcastle pretty much dominated the game. And, you know, it was a snatch and grab from Everton. 
and, and now it's back to the drawing board for them. Everything went wrong for Everton, but uh, Kish, everything went right for Crystal Palace. It remaining will be Chelsea, Liverpool, and Man City. I have Crystal Palace down as winning the FA Cup this year. What do you think? I think this FA Cup tie was a perfect representation of just how different the ownership and the leadership at both clubs are. Make no mistakes, Crystal Palace under Roy Hodgson were an incredibly difficult team to break down and they often made life difficult for opponents. And, you know, at most other clubs, you look at that sort of stability and you think to yourself, okay, there's not really a reason there for us to disrupt it. But but Crystal Palace were very, uh, you know, they, they, they knew exactly what they wanted to do when when they let Roy Hodgson go, when they allowed that tenure to end, and then they got in Patrick Vieira. Because they wanted to play progressive football, they wanted to develop young talents, they wanted to move into a, a, a new direction. And that's the sort of leadership you need at Everton at the moment. Because this, this, whatever is happening at Everton at the moment, there's two ways to look at it. One, it's Frank Lampard's fault, which to a large extent, I happen to think it is as well, because I don't think he's that great of a football manager. I think he's been he, his reputation as a player has been carrying the weight so far um, during his time as a manager. Because you look at his at his time across Chelsea, when things got tough, he was always cracking under pressure as well. And he also cracked under pressure last night. By the way, he blamed it on the players. Said it wasn't about the tactics; it was rather the players themselves who lacked so-called the bollocks to to be able to push push on and 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 play and 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 get get a result. But on the other hand, whatever is happening at Everton has been happening for a while now. The decision-making, the transfer signings over the last four or five years at the very least. The clash between the owner, uh, Moshiri, and even uh, the director of football, Marcel Brands. So th- there's a lot of fundamental issues at Everton. Whereas at the Crystal Palace, they seem to be perfect in terms of their decision-making, in terms of how they are going about their sensible businesses, getting loan players from bigger Premier League clubs instead of splashing the cash that they don't necessarily have. Really, really smart stuff from Crystal Palace. And it it just goes to show um, how important it is to have uh, a proper leadership at the top of the club. Yeah, and so meanwhile, though, the other uh, Merseyside club, Arvin, Liverpool, they... uh, Well, the scoreline is Nottingham Forest nil, Liverpool 1. Poor old Bob Holmes on our Friday show will be very, very sad. You know, the scoreline, I don't know, it's, uh, Forrest had their chances, but at the same time, a sort of sort of second-string Liverpool dominated? Second-string Liverpool would probably be top of the championship. I mean, the amount of quality that they've got in that squad. Um, well, first, yeah, I, I have to say a real class act from, from Nottingham Forest. I mean, vacating, vacating the 97 seats for the for the victims of the Hillsborough disaster, that, that really showed a touch of class for a club that's, that's, re, that's rich in tradition. Um, they're ninth in the championship, uh, and they've got a shot of shot off for, for playoffs. That there's an opportunity for them to get into the playoffs. And Steve Cooper is showing what a good manager he is. He he did he did a good job um, previously in his previous role with Swansea, and he's doing so again. They play a brand of very f- packed, fill intensity counter attacking football, and you saw that against the game against Liverpool. They've given problems to Liverpool that probably half the Premier League teams couldn't do. So in that sense, there's a spirit, there's a belief, and there's a togetherness with Nottingham Forest. So, and backing what Kish was saying, I mean, when you look at Everton, if, if we're going back to the Everton discussion, that's the type of manager that I would think that you would go into to kind of get you to the next level that you need to. You don't need Frank Lampard to come in 
and help you in a relegation battle. He's never been in a relegation battle before. But yeah, I mean, Liverpool, at the end of the day, even with the changes that they made, Costa Simicas, for me, was a great cross into the box. I mean, we always talked about the fact when Andy Robertson is not there, what are they going to do? They used to deputise with James Milner. Costa Simicas is a good, a very, very good left back. In that sense, Diego Jota's output, uh, output is still very, very rich in the, in the squad. So yeah, Liverpool are there on merit, but Nottingham Forest gave it a real good shout, that's for sure. Uh, very quickly, uh, Arvin Jota, uh, first season, one of the best first season debut season yeah. performances I've seen. Yeah, and, and it's 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 down to the recruitment of Liverpool. They they buy players that fit into the system. He's come in and I think he's got 15 goals right now across all competitions. And you would see Luis Diaz doing well next season as well. It's very seldom that you would say Jürgen Klopp has got it wrong with a transfer. Probably the last one I would think he's got it wrong is probably Ozan Kabak, who's an absolute disaster as a defender. But other than that, Liverpool and Jürgen Klopp get their transfers right. So it's no surprise. And they'll go from strength to strength with that one. So uh, in a moment, though, when we come back, we're going to be looking at the other two uh, FA Cup quarterfinals here on Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. Captain, leader, legend. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball and we are completing our FA Cup quarterfinal uh, reviews. And Kishnan, I want to start with you. Because you're a Manchester United fan, I want to... Look at the the, the noisy neighbours. I think they're still called that, are they? Do you call them that? Manchester City. Uh, they. It was a really incredible display. I thought Ma- uh, Southampton won. Man City four. What did you think? Yeah, it was a completely dominant display. It, it, the the thing about Southampton is it's one of those teams that, regardless of where you're facing them with what squad, you've always got to be extra cautious because um, Ralph Hasenhutl has more often than not got the squad really well drilled. I think it. He, he almost deceives the entire country um, with, it, with Southampton's performances uh, because it allows you to forget that this is actually a pretty thin squad and a pretty inexpensive squad. And it's one of those squads that's assembled with barely any funding at the moment. Uh, but, but ultimately, when it comes to Southampton versus Man City, they, they, they did what they could do for at least, I think, about 50, 60 minutes. Uh, but then it came to a point that the moment the goals started going in, um, it became too overwhelming for, for Southampton. And that's the kind of thing that Man City can do to you. Because I watched, I watched something similar against Sporting Lisbon um, a few, few weeks back. Not the one in Manchester, but the one in Lisbon. Um, when they got a 5-0 win in the first leg. And it was something similar as well. Because Sporting Lisbon are a, are a pretty uh, decent side. They've got plenty of quality there. And they were trying to give City a game. But the moment the first couple of goals went in and they started overwhelming you with the pressure, um, it all just came uh, tumbling down. And that's exactly what happened against Southampton. It's hard to find new things to say about Manchester City. But I'm going to put one out there because it's uh, internationals coming up. Raheem Sterling, he, was, he did a perfectly good performance. But if he'd done that performance where he missed a couple of chances, very difficult chances early on, he would be absolutely attacked if he were playing doing that for England. Do we have other standards for for Raheem Sterling? And also, let's mention Phil Foden, who scored a wonderful goal. Yeah, I, I would start with Foden first. I think um, in Foden, you're looking at, at someone who could potentially not only lead the line for City, but also for England in the future. Because you look at England and the focal, the main, the main focal target is 
um, Harry Kane, you know, you have Rashford who, who also plays there. But but look at Phil Foden, you know, when he comes on, his his awareness in the box, the the ferocity in his in his shots, um, the the way he you know he swivels, he he's pretty much, I would say, almost the complete product, you know. Um, and he's been thrust in a lot of positions uh, this uh, this season. I think he's been playing uh, in that in that focal role more often. Um, more often than not, he's come on as a sub. But each time he comes on, you know, he takes his chances so well. This goal against um, uh, in the FA Cup was absolutely out of the world, and it ultimately, you know, killed the tie for for um, City. Uh, you know, they they they, they were two one up, and and as soon as Foden came on, you could see the influence that he made. And yeah, the third goal went in, and and Southampton were pretty much uh, done and dusted for. As for Sterling, I I don't think uh, you know his his performances has waned. Of course, uh, the the limelight when you play for England is is different because um, um, it's different when you play with with City when you have so many players who can contribute with the goals. But uh, when you play for your country and especially England, the expectations are naturally higher. But I thought he had a great game and and he will be continued to be one of the uh, the main focal points for City uh, this season. And there's plenty of games you know left where Sterling's uh, magic will be needed. Yeah. Uh- Arvin, the other final quarterfinal match was uh, Middlesbrough nil, Chelsea 2. This seemed to me like a classic uh, Premier League team plays championship team. Uh, but also Lukaku and Ziyech, two players who've not had most wonderful time in uh, Chelsea this season, coming good. Yeah, I mean, there's no bigger story in football right now, right? Rather than Chelsea, probably is a little bit of the sympathy for the, the Ukrainian players. Probably Chelsea comes into a close second for that, a related story. But yeah, I mean, they did their talking on a pitch on a match which had a lot of talk prior to that. Obviously, Chelsea did a bit of a PR disaster asking for that game to be played, then closed doors, um, stopping the opportunity for Middlesbrough fans who've had a good fairy tale run in this competition. I mean, let's, let's not take anything away from them. They've knocked out Spurs, they've knocked out United. So in that sense, Middlesbrough are, were, were there and were deserving of their place. They did their talking on the pitch, so Chelsea. Uh, I felt it was a very professional perf- performance from them. The goals, especially the first one, was an absolute beauty of a team goal with the amount of players that were involved from back to front. Uh, Lukaku, yeah, he scored. It was kind of put on the plate for him by Mason Mount, but you would expect Lukaku to show a little bit more excitement of getting a goal. He just seemed to be all, okay, yeah, I've scored. Doesn't, things don't seem to be fully right there. Uh, Hakim Ziyech, that wonderful left foot. I guess Chelsea fans just wish he could do it a bit more often. Um, superb finish into the corner. But, but Chris Wilder has done really well. I mean, it was a partisan Riverside Stadium. And they, they, they're donating all the proceeds to the Ukraine um, cause. So I thought that was very admirable. And right now, being seventh in the championship, they've got multiple games in hand. If they win those games, they can go up to third or fourth. So the race for the championship for promotion is, is just very exciting at this moment in time. Um, and they're looking for a new owner as well. The long, long time Steve Gibson is willing to, to give up the club. So Middlesbrough have got, got a good future ahead of them. Um, and with Chris Wilder, they've got that wily old fox that kind of seems to know what to do and when to do it. I guess, Arvin, you and Nicholas being Leeds United fans, keep an eye on what's happening in the championship because you'd like to, you know, know what's going to happen next season. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> we're going to talk about Leeds a bit later and, and how, ty- how things are changing over there. But, uh, okay, so that's your FA Cup um, a review. I think it's. Uh, I think it's actually a pretty. It's a pretty good FA Cup. Yeah, I think people are nodding their heads. 
Okay, but let's move to, well, the other end of the spectrum, the UEFA, UEFA Champions League. The draw came out um, on Friday, and we have it now. It's three English teams. We've got Benfica versus Liverpool, Man City versus Atletico Madrid, Villarreal Bayern, Bayern Munich, and finally Chelsea Real Madrid. Let's let's start with you, uh, Nicholas. And uh, because you go first, I'm going to go with who do you think uh, is going to win with Benfica versus Liverpool? Liverpool must be I'm, I was going to say, I'm about to say favourites to win this competition. Can I go with Benfica? Go ahead. <laughs> uh, Liverpool have just you know they've gone about their business you know in such an efficient manner. Um, but I, 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 I'm beginning to think when, when, when is the ceiling? When is the, when is the, the breaking point? You know, in terms of the, the players' exertion. You know, uh, there has to be a, a breaking point in terms of, of their physical capabilities. Now, Klopp has, has just gone about his, his, his business. You know, they've, they've recorded wins, um, uninspiring wins, but wins nonetheless. But April holds a big, big month uh, for Liverpool. You know, um, they have seven games in 22 days. Um, two matches against uh, Manchester City. One of it is in the FA Cup semi-finals, um, and, and you've got to you've got to look at at how a club is going to manage this this whole tricky situation. You know, player rotation comes into play, but of course there, there's also uh, yeah, injuries. Yeah. There, there there involves uh, travel as well. So um, you know, the underdog in me wants Benfica to win, but I, I think Liverpool will will somehow get through this. But it's it's going to be a tough ask on them, you know, especially looking at this grueling April fixture. Kishnan, two teams that I don't see yeah. very often because I don't really look at the Bundesliga as much as I used to. And also, I don't look at the Spanish league as much as I used to. Uh, Villarreal, Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich always quoted as being a favourite. Um, who, are, who, are, who are these two teams and what, do they, what can they offer? There's going to be two misconceptions about this tie, really. First one, obviously, people are going to look at this tie and think that, hey... You know, Villarreal, Villarreal, they've had a good run. This is where their journey ends because, you know, that's what Villarreal do. They don't, they're not really a team that go far beyond and they might not necessarily have the quality to do it. And the second misconception that people will have is that Bayern Munich are this supreme German giants that are just going to completely destroy Villarreal. Well, first and foremost, um, Villarreal are, are a pretty decent team. They've got exceptional players in the squad. I know in the La Liga that, that they've had some struggles here and there. They've not been able to push on with in terms of consistency. But in a one-off game, they've got more than enough quality in that team to be able to hurt any team in Europe at the moment. You, you look at, the, at, at, the, at, their, at their squad, they've got Gerard Moreno, uh, they've got Samuel Chukwuze from Nigeria, who's an exceptional talent. Um, they've got Jeremy uh, Pina, they've got uh, Francis Cookland. So all, like these are really solid players. And you saw that quality come out when they put three past uh, a difficult... Juventus side um, in, in, in the round of 16. But going back to Bayern Munich themselves, if there is a season in which you can completely try and get one over Bayern, this is that season. Because the story in the Bundesliga at the moment is that, yes, they are, a, they are an exceptional free-scoring team, but they've got issues at the back. They've, they've, they've been conceding a lot of goals this season, more than they usually do in multiple seasons before. And let's not forget, this is also a transitional period for Julian Nagelsmann as a manager. It's his first season at the club. So in the Bundesliga, that's exactly what's been happening. They've been scoring goals, but they've also picked up some really embarrassing defeat. I think about three weeks ago, they conceded four goals against VFL Bochum. 
and lost that game 4-2, which, you know, that's the sort of result you would never expect to get out of Bayern. But it goes to show that there is an opportunity to get one over this this current Bayern team. There's a bit of inconsistency about them at the moment. So honestly, if you ask me, Cam, I think this is one of the, it's going to be one of the most open uh, ties in the Champions League qualifier. And yet you think Bayern Munich are going to win? I'm actually leaning slightly towards Villarreal. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. I, you've suddenly made me more interested in this tie. Arvind, uh, a team that you uh, follow very closely, uh, who um, that had a, a <laughs> quite a big defeat in, uh, in La Liga just the other day, which we might talk about more in depth later. Real Madrid are going to be playing Chelsea, the current champion and the all-time champion. Could be, a, could be good or Real Madrid going to push their way through the way they always do? Um, it's a repeat of last season's semi-finals. In last season's semi-finals, Chelsea completely outplayed Real Madrid at that time. As opposed to the Villarreal Bayern, which I thought Kish perfectly narrated, I think this is going to be quite a cagey affair from both the teams. You're looking at, I still feel that Chelsea is in a very siege mentality mode right now, which I've talked about in this show before, where they feel that it's the world against them. And then you've got Real Madrid who can just literally do anything on these European nights. What Real Madrid have to do is they have to beat Chelsea. They've never beaten Chelsea in in, in, in a proper competition. Friendlies they have, but they've never beaten Chelsea. And Thomas Tuchel has, has constantly beaten the, the, the Spanish Giants. So it's going to be a tough one. Madrid are a better squad than, than they were last season. Uh, Karim Benzema is having potentially his best ever season for the club. David Alaba at the back and Militao have really consolidated things. Yes, there was a huge setback against Barcelona for many, many reasons. But the squad overall... I would say is in a better position than when they were when they, they faced Chelsea last season. But then again, with Chelsea, they're not as solid as they were last season. But again, sometimes the mentality that it's, it's against the world, we're going to go out and show you how we're going to do it. So I feel this is going to be really, really tight, more cagey than the other ties. Uh, but I just have a sneaky feeling that, that that run of not beating Chelsea has to turn eventually. So I just feel Real will just somehow sneak it in. And having the second leg in the Bernabeu is a big thing, as you saw with what happened with PSG. Uh, Nicholas, I'm not going to turn to you now because I need you for the the next match. We're going to be talking about something you know so much more about, uh, which is will be Leeds. But for now, I want to finish off with Man City versus Atletico Madrid. Uh, Kish, this is like Clash of Beauty and the Beast, isn't it? And I'm not, yep. I'm not really sure. I don't know what the head-to-heads are between Pep Guardiola and Diego Simeone, but uh, this could be... A horrible match to watch? Um, <laughs> this is like the matchup between two managers who are the complete antithesis of each other. Like Pat Guardiola, his brand of football, his ideology of football, the way he looks at how the game should be played, is the complete opposite of Diego Simeone, who is just this guy who is obsessed with winning and, and the mentality of winning at all costs, even if it means you're just going to sit back and protect your defence in an ugly manner. But it is what it is. And in many ways, Cam, I genuinely think uh, this is also a matchup between two sides who can get one over each other. My point by saying that is when you look at the previous tie at Atletico Madrid versus Man United, um, you would always slightly lean a bit more towards Atletico because you knew that Man United don't necessarily have the tools, the patience and the tactical nows to be able to pick apart a side that is defending in a low block that is defending really deep. Whereas Atletico Madrid, you knew they could hurt Man United. But in this case, it's it's pretty balanced. Because on one hand, I can imagine a scenario in which Atletico Madrid completely just frustrate 
Man City and sneak a 1-0 win. Perfectly understandable, perfectly possible. But alternatively, I can also imagine a scenario in which Man City really unpick the small issues in the Atletico Madrid low block and completely get a, a massive win out of that. Because Atletico Madrid this season have not been perfect, far from perfect. They've had their issues in La Liga, but they've always done well in the Champions League because of that siege mentality that Diego Simeone can build into his team heading into a Champions League game. But let's not forget, Man City have more than enough players to be able to operate in tight spaces. Your Fordens, your Bernardo Silvas, your Ilkay Gundogan's. These are the kind of players that you will need to break apart a, a low block. So this is, once again, it's, it's, it, can be, it can go either way. And it's a 50-50 tie for me and I'm genuinely looking forward to it. And I am looking forward to perhaps a masterclass in time-wasting. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would urge young players to watch this and learn. Uh, how it's done uh, with Diego Simeone's team. Well, okay. Well, in a moment, we're going we're gonna to be coming back to the Premier League where, well, Nicholas and Arvin, I think, will be very happy because, well, we'll come to that in a moment here on Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. Because whilst he's there, it's very difficult for other clubs to get near them. He's that good. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back with Off the Ball with myself, Karam Raslan, Kishnan Sundaresa, Nicholas Anil and Avin Sidhu. So we're going to be talking now on um, the Premier League. There were Premier League matches over the weekend, uh, despite also the uh, FA Cup being played. Well, one of the most important scorelines was uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers 2, Leeds 3. I'm not going to do any preamble. Nicholas, what happened and... Uh, was it a good vintage uh, new performance from Leeds? It was a performance that um, really typified what Leeds uh, have been about for a long time. You know, you, you take away the performances uh, in, in the last couple of weeks uh, before Jesse March came in, um, and the players seemed to lose a lot of belief uh, in themselves. Um, and for me, the most glaring difference between that team and this team which are performing now is the belief that has been restored. Because if you look at this game, Wolves were 2-0 up. Okay, they, they, were, they were cruising pretty much. And then um, Raul Jimenez gets a red card. Um, and of course, um, Leeds have the added man advantage. But there was still so much of work to be done. And the way that they, you know, had come back, fought their way back into this match was, was, was one. Um, doing that after losing four players was another thing, you know. Um, I think Leeds are the team which has dealt with the most injuries in the league this season. And... And this game was was more than than any other any other match. You know, four key players out. You know, uh, we only got the the benefit of having the fourth substitution because of the concussion rule. Uh, and as a result, managed to get eleven players on the pitch and eventually found the main, the, the the winning goal in injury time, like they did against Norwich. Um, I think this result w- wouldn't have been made possible if the players did not have belief in themselves. But you know, credit to Jesse Much. He's, he's come into the team. He's made a lot of changes, but more importantly, he's gone and told this crop of players that you have the ability to do this. You have done it before, and you know you are capable of doing it again. And they are beginning to show it on the pitch. And and in the context of a relegation scrap, it puts a lot of daylight. Seven points is a lot of daylight. Um, and I think the only way is hopefully up after this. You know, we got a. A home clash against Southampton, and if we get a result there, then um, you know we are in the driving seat to stay in the league. 
Uh, Arvin, if I didn't let you talk about Leeds, I think uh, it would <laughs> you'd just smash your computer screen right now. So, um, Arvin, Leeds are out of relegation trouble, but also Jesse Marsh is, is continuing that uh, Bielsa tradition of not making it easy for themselves. Yeah, that's that's the Leeds way. We never make it easy for ourselves. Um, what I thought was very, very opportune or very, very key for this game is that, yes, when Rahul Jimenez gets sent off, it is a turning point. Let's not make any two, two ways about it. It is a turning point. But sometimes it's tougher to play against 10 men compared to playing against 11. And against a Wolves squad who hasn't lost by more than one goal at home the entire season, Leeds needed to show up. And what Jesse Marsh did really well was he picked up the spots on that pitch where he knew the players could run into. He identified the areas that Wolves were going to be left exposed and he used the runners that Leeds have because the, the front three for Leeds are all runners. When Patrick Bamford went off, everyone else just runs at you. And and a big credit to the team is that when one of the goals went in, Stuart Dallas was actually down. The players could have stopped playing, but Leeds players continued playing and they got the goal that they needed. So six points back-to-back wins is a huge thing. If you asked any Leeds fan before the Wolves game, they would have been happy with a draw. But having six points taken back-to-back and the manner of which the wins have come has literally increased the belief in that, that squad 10-4. And Jesse Watch has done really well with the fan base because he's come out recently and said, out of all the clubs I've managed, whether it's RB Salzburg, whether it's RB Leipzig, this is the team with the most history and tradition. That's how you buy into Lily's fan base, and he's been able to do it. So really good things. Hopefully the two weeks gives the squad a bit of time to recover some of those injuries. Calvin Phillips, Liam Cooper coming back after the break. Good things, but one game at a time. They, they do need one or two more wins just to solidify, but I think they'll, they'll get that. The Sidhu household is happy for once. Kishna was about to uh, throw a spoiler no, I, in there. I, I, no, I, I was about to say that it's, it's really... Like, I'm a big fan of Jesse March. Um, even from his RB Salzburg days, I wanted him to really do well in the Bundesliga, but obviously the things didn't quite work out. And I'm genuinely happy to see him at Leeds at the moment. And I'm also happy to see how the fan base, because initially when he was appointed, there was a lot of these tech lasso jokes being cracked. But I'm genuinely happy to see how the, the you know the uh, Leeds fans and the opinion of him is slowly changing. But the one thing I will say is, give this man the chance. And don't don't get on his back far too early. Don't 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 crank up the pressure unnecessarily because he's clearly a good manager. But the reality is exactly what Jesse himself said, that this is the biggest club in terms of history and tradition that he's ever coached. And his previous coaching jobs were all under the Red Bull um, Mm. umbrella. And under the Red Bull umbrella, pressure only comes from the management. And even then, the management have that ability to be long-sighted about things. So temporary struggles can be pushed away if you're building something in the long term. But not at Leeds. Lose a couple of games and the pressure will crank up. And and I'm just hoping for Jesse's sake, they learn to manage expectations in the first six months before you allow him the room to be able to fully... Because whatever we're seeing from Leeds at the moment, this is not full Jesse yet. It takes time to completely buy into Jesse's uh, counter-pressing style of football that 4-2-2-2 formation, it takes a bit of time, so give that man that time. Okay, so good times ahead for uh, Leeds fans. And uh, we're gonna. I want Nicholas to take us through to, I think, what a really was an eye-catching performance, actually, with uh, Spurs 3, West Ham 1. Uh, many times, actually, a few times anyway, in the Conte era, I watched a Spurs match and go, this is Spurs, this is happening. And then the next match would be diabolical. But this was Spurs. 
the 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 Kane Son partnership happening. And Son, he, I mean, how good is Son? Yeah, he's he's been exceptional. I think he's been exceptional for uh, for a long time. You know, if if you if you look at the starting list and 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 the team sheet and and the first names to go on on that list, um, you will have Son um, as, as number one. Um, and again, you know, it it really typified the type of player that he is. Um, you know, a player that is so intelligent. For me, Son, you know, he has everything in in his armory. You know, he has speed, uh, he has finishing. Uh, but the football intelligent brain is not uh, something all footballers have. Uh, but but Son has that. You know, he knows what is he going to do when he gets the ball. So he 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 doesn't take long to figure out. You know, he doesn't dwell on the ball. He doesn't um, you know uh, delay play. You know, he gets it either left foot, right foot. You know, he's adept in both. Um, and and his finishing is usually inch perfect. Now this game was was another. Uh, uh, Kane Son sort of combination, you know, lethal combination. But you have to look at the at the at the finishing of both two different sort of goals. You know, the first goal, uh, Kane receiving the ball for midfield, you know, brilliant through pass, and then Son finds the top corner. And the second one was just route one, you know, a flick header from Kane. And again, that that run yeah. from Son was again exceptional. Um, and there was a stat which I read: um, Kane has now assisted Son twenty times. And it's the third highest uh, combination assist, and and you can see that this this combination will only uh, flourish if um, Kane continues to uh, you know stay at first. But for all their for all their prowess, for, for all their yeah the good points, I think um, behind the scenes Conte has still a lot to work with. Um, number one is this Kulusevski. You know, he, ever since he came on, he's been brilliant for them. But him being in the starting lineup means that. Mora and Bergwijn have constantly been sidelined. You know, in this game they only came in in injury time, so um, that's a bit of man management that he needs to do. And and another thing is conceding from corners. You know, being the, the man that builds his team on defensive solidity again, uh, Spurs conceded from a corner. So these things that he still has to work on, but overall, a great win for Spurs. You you three are uh, a young men, but you you're students of history, the history of the game. So when you see a scoreline like Aston Villa nil, Arsenal one, uh, that was once upon a time the classic Arsenal win, and I think that the fans would be very happy to see that again. Something genuinely uh, good is happening at Arsenal. Yeah, at, at both clubs, I feel even with Villa, obviously they they were off on the day, but at both clubs, I think they're moving in the right direction. Um, Arsenal, for me, they knew how to silence the Villa Park crowd. They, they literally at one point, um, pretty much uh, the goalkeeper, Bert Leno, who was, who was uh, deputising for Ramsdale, who wasn't who took a little bit of a knock, he literally had nothing to do. Obviously, he was called into it much later in the second half. But Arsenal were good value for their money. And what they've done is they've realised... So the, the opposite spectrums of, of having games in hands is Arsenal has been able to capitalise on the games in hand. They had a couple of games in hands over the teams below them and they've won their games. On the other hand, you've got Everton who've still got games in hands who need to show what, what mm-hmm. Arsenal are doing mm-hmm. by making those games in hand translate into points. So Arsenal will welcome going back to the Champions League. I mean, they've been out of this, the competition for a couple of years. And with Arteta, the progression is, is key. And he's shown that with patience, with his strong man management skills, I, I feel the way that he has let Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang go for the benefit of Aubameyang as a player and for benefit of Arsenal as a club 
is very admirable. The DNA of players that he's got into that squad, it's very clear that Arteta has taken quite a lot of good stuff from Pep Guardiola, but he's kind of come and put his own style on it as well. So Arsenal are good value for their money right now. Um, even their defeat when, when they lost uh, to Liverpool, they, they didn't play all that bad. Yes, Liverpool are on a different level, but Arsenal in a couple of years in this progression will be able to be quite much closer to Liverpool. So good things, and even Villa under Gerrard, they're good. It was just an off day for them, uh, but they've got, they will look to the end of the season when Gerrard can really come and mold the team and get the signings that he wants. So good things for both the, both the squads in my opinion. Yeah, and with with, with Stephen Gerrard, I mean, you, you can't help thinking of uh, Frank Lampard comparing, and you know, the, could they ever play on the same pitch at the same time? Gerrard is a genuine manager. I, I don't know Lampard is just I don't really know. <laughs> uh, Kishnan, I want to ask you about the uh, I want to I want to ask you about the uh, Leicester two Brentford one, uh, but I also want to ask you another question. Leicester finally getting some players back, pulling things together. You know, they still have a season to play. They've got some things to 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 potentially win but also i couldn't help thinking when when nicholas was talking about uh, son i couldn't i was thinking son is he the guy that manchester united need see the thing about son is i can go on and on and on about him cam i genuinely feel that if son wasn't asian he would be celebrated like no one's business at this point in time i think there's a bit of an asian bias about son you mean that he's still somewhat slightly underrated and disrespected because he's easily you look at spurs and over the years, all the different managers that have come in, and there's always been one guy who has always played well, regardless of who the manager is. And that has always been Son Heung-min. And he's always stepped up in the big moments as well. He's always scoring against your Man Cities. He's always doing well in the Champions League. He's, he's a big game player. He's a big moment player. And he's the kind of guy that I, I look at Son Heung-min, and I can't think of a team that he'll walk into and he'll instantly improve. Like I, I can imagine him going to Barcelona easily. I can imagine him going to to uh, to Real Madrid. I genuinely think he'll make them better as well. I can imagine him going even to Man City for that matter and still be in that starting eleven because he offers you work rate. He gives you penetrative runs. He scores goals. He creates chances. He's such a he's like a whole package in in in, in a many way. And I genuinely think in in the larger context of things, he's one of the most disrespected players of his generation. Mm. So that was uh, Leicester 2, Brentford 1. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, mean I, 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 was, I was focusing a lot of it on the Sonny main situation. But, but when it comes to Leicester, uh, I, I agree with you, Cam. I think getting, getting a few players back from injury, um, really, really helping them. I think James Madison played you know, a fundamental role in helping them beat Brentford as well. James Madison is a curious one. Because I remember uh, doing the BFM show, I think about two years ago, was it? When um, and when Ross asked me, um, who do you think is a better player, uh, James Madison or Jack Grealish? And at that point in time, I genuinely thought James Madison was going to go on to become a, a, a fundamental, a fundamentally better footballer because he has this one thing about him, which is he he almost plays um, football like he's playing futsal. Uh, it's that close control, it's that dragging back of the ball. He's got such a street footballer vibe about him which is really exciting to see. But he's never been able to kick on over the last two to three years. He's always had uh, consistency issues. He's been linked with Arsenal. Move didn't materialise. Linked with Man United as well. Nothing came of it. And whilst Jack Grealish has grown by leaps and bounds and he's finding himself now in the peripheries of Man City, you've got James Madison, 
who's still being regarded as the guy who needs to prove himself at Leicester. But to be fair, against Brentford, he was their best player on the pitch. So it's generally great to see James Madison um, hitting the heights that we know he can. Okay, so that was Leicester 2, Brentford 1. And uh, and I have a stat, actually. Apparently, since uh, the 2018 uh, season, nobody has scored more goals from outside the box, from distance, than James Madison. Surprised me, too. So, uh, in a moment, though, we're going to wrap up with some more La Liga and some uh, World Cup qualifiers and also a listener's letter here on Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. England's highest quality title race of all time, but coming out on top again in the Premier League, Manchester City. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back for our final part, part four, here on Off the Ball. And we start with Arvin because um, we're talking about La Liga. We don't go there often enough. And there was an eye-catching scoreline, Barcelona 4, Real Madrid 0, or should I say Real Madrid 0, it was at home. Barcelona 4. Um, I'd almost forgotten about that place called Barcelona. They used to be quite good. Xavi's yeah, done a fantastic job. He's been there for less than 150 days, but he's literally transformed the way that they play the club. Everything that went that needed to go wrong for Carlo Ancelotti went wrong. I thought the lineup was wrong. The tactics were wrong. And they just came up against the Barcelona squad who's doing really, really well at this moment in time. You would think that Real having the whole week off would come out as being a bit more fresher compared to Barcelona, who's actually been away at Galatasaray and come back. But it was the other way around. Nacho at left-back got literally murdered by Dembele each time Dembele ran at him. Carvajal is an is a issue that Real need to sort out at, at right-back as well. And it, it cannot just be down to the fact that you're missing Karim Benzema and Ferland Mendy. Yes, they are very, very big parts of that squad. But there's still a revamp that's needed at Real in some instances. There's a lot of talk that the Mbappe deal seems to be 90-95% sorted. In everyone's mind, he's there. But now there's talk also of Haaland coming over. Perez loves that 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 that, um, that blockbuster signings. Yes, those are important, but you need to look at that squad overall as well. Carlo Ancelotti has got a lot of flack from Real Madrid supporters because no matter what situation the club is in, Hazard, Jovic will never be given a chance. And Bale. Yeah, I, I I don't get that. I, I get that they're leaving, but you need to work with the tools that you have. They are never given a chance. The midfield are never rotated. So can, can I just ask you, Arvin? I, I just want to ask you this one thing, which is like obviously last night they went with Luka Modric in that sort of I don't know a false nine role that didn't yeah. make sense at all yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you have you you genuinely need goals, number one, um, you don't have Karim Benzema. And you're playing a 37-year-old central midfielder in a false nine role. Yeah. When you have, you know, Luka Jovic and Eden Hazard on the bench, how does that, in what world does that make sense? Of? Yeah, that's my main criticism with Carlo. He's very, very stuck on his first level and his preferred guys on the subs. He will completely discard everyone else. I get the Bale one because Bale's leaving at the end of the season, but he can offer something a bit different. These are seasoned professionals. He's tried the Luka Modric one, just like he tried Asensio in that role early in the season and it didn't work out as well. So that's the real frustration. This this defeat hurts Real. Yes, they've got a healthy nine-point lead. Sevilla drew over the weekend. That's good for them. But if Barcelona win their game in hand, Barcelona nine points behind Real. Yes, it's going to take a huge thing for Real to lose three games and Barcelona win three more. But this is a huge reminder for Madrid. And it's very sad because they were wearing a kit that was a 120th anniversary which I personally bought as in black but it seemed like Real Madrid went to the funeral last night so that was very unfortunate <laughs> mm. 
Nicholas, let's stay on with um, La Liga for a little bit longer. Uh, Barcelona. And um, so Xavi doing a good job there. Their finances are <laughs> not good. But actually, the, one thing that I think that has needs to be pointed out is that uh, people have sort of like raised their tut-tutted, rolled their eyes as if Spain is just this incompetent place. But actually, the Spanish league, the Spanish FA, have been very strong about uh, financial fair play in a way that other leagues are not. They actually take it very seriously. And uh, do you think that we will see Barcelona back again in our time? Well, if you look at the performances uh, that they have produced, uh, on the evidence of just last night, uh, it was pretty much um, um, the Barcelona performance that a lot of fans could resonate with, you know, possession football, but with a little bit more freedom uh, for the midfielders, you know, to push up, to, to sort of create the chances. Um, and again, I go back to Xavi, uh, um, the, the transformation that he's done, you know, uh, being a club legend, taking over as manager uh, is two different things, you know, of course, you, you are revered, you know, you are you are celebrated. But if the results don't go um, your way, the fans, you know, will turn at you at some point. But um, credit to Xavi, you know, he's, he's stuck to, to his ways. I think uh, he's built a lot of his uh, principle, a lot of his coaching methods uh, in the Saudi league, you know, um, and, you know, really enhanced them. And and he's taken that, that sort of philosophy and brought it um, to Barcelona. And you see the players that, that he's, he's brought in, you know. I, I don't think he's made a single mistake with, with, with the new signings. You look at Adama Traore, you know, which is flourished now uh, with a couple of assists. You have Fernand Torres, which is hugely underrated. And, and look how he's doing. Um, and Abu Mayang, you know, the fact that Abu Mayang actually touched down at, at Barcelona Airport, wanting to get the signature and, and be at Barca uh, on deadline day, says so much about... Uh, his his enthusiasm and his and his uh, love to join this passion project uh, that Zavi is building, um, and one of the main things uh, that has done so well for this Barca team is the re-emergence of uh, Usmane Dembele. You know, he was on the verge of leaving, persuaded by Zavi to stay on, and and now he's the main one of the main men in the squad. And it's not only these ready-made players that have you know done Barca so well; it's also the young ones. You have your Gavis, you have your Pedris, you know, uh, Ronald Araujo. Uh, these are all the players for the future, which if you look back at, at, at the uh, Barca when, when Pep was in charge, you know, um, it was all these academy players. And it seems that um, Zavi is trying to bring that back. Um, and this is just another feather in, in uh, Zavi's cap. And I think, um, you know, they, they are going to definitely get that. Forget forget um, all that... that um, that signing, that signing uh, incapabilities that they had, uh, they have got a pretty solid squad to work with, not only for this season, but also for the coming seasons as well. You you guys know so much about football. I'm, it's just, I'll take my hat off. Fantastic. <laughs> so, okay, so the, the, the breaking news, though, is that, uh, yeah, Chris, uh, Gareth Bale, sorry, um, transfer to Wales will be made permanent soon. Um, Kish, World Cup qualifiers. I have, um, and I'm, gonna, I'm really going to hope you people can help me out here. I've tried to understand path A, path B, and the World Cup qualifiers. And um, all I could work out is that I got as far as Papua New Guinea have no chance in hell of qualifying. Anything to look out for in these World Cup qualifiers coming up? I mean, uh, Cam, the path, the 
part A, part B thing, it, it's it's actually just a very simple UEFA way of just describing the different matchups. Because obviously, uh, there are a total of, hold on, let me calculate, four, I think there's a total of 12 teams that, that are vying for, for a bunch of spots in the World Cup. I think there's three spots in total that they're playing for at the moment. So when you're playing for three spots and you have 12 teams, you've got to divide them into like four, into three subgroups. So you've got two semifinals in each part. And then those two semifinalists, the winners go on to play the final. The winner of that final qualifies for the World Cup. So when you've got three parts, eventually you find three winners and that takes the three allocated spots in the World Cup. And the biggest tie, honestly, the one I'm genuinely... Like, I, I, I don't think... I, I, I think in the next few days, the excitement and the tension is going to really build up. I don't think people are ready for what's about to come because it is going to be sink or swim for both uh, Portugal and Italy. This is the tie. There's nothing bigger than this at the moment. The reality is one of them is going to miss out on the World Cup. And the narratives are incredible, right? If Italy miss out, that's going to be Roberto Mancini's head on the chopping blocks. Because that will be the second... I mean, the previous World Cup wasn't his fault that they missed out on it. But after all the Euros performances, the, the expectation was that he was going to take them to the World Cup. But they had some you know, unnecessary blips in the group stages and they find themselves in this playoff situation that if they lose, they, they have to play a semi-final against Macedonia. The expectation is they'll win that. Portugal have to play Turkey. Again, I'm being optimistic. The expectation is Portugal will win that too. And when Portugal play Italy in the final, if Italy were to lose this, that's two back-to-back World Cups that they would have missed out on. And the Italians are big on the World Cup. It's, it's, it's a national disaster when they don't make it. So that's going to be massive. But if Portugal don't make it, which is like this is one of the finest Portuguese squads in a very long time. You look at that attacking uh, lineup, you've got Andre Silva, Bernardo Silva, uh, you've got João Felix, You've got Diego Jota, Bruno Fernandes, Cristiano Ronaldo. This is an exceptional team. If they don't make it, that's going to be a massive disappointment too. And more importantly, that's the end of the World Cup road for Cristiano Ronaldo then. So there's plenty of narratives here. And I just, I for one, I just cannot wait for these games because this is going to be ridiculous. It's going to be incredible, really. Well, Kishnan has stolen the uh, the big headline matchup. So, Arvin, uh, which other teams are you thinking uh, from the European pool can uh, could make it through? Well, I mean, when you look at Path B, I mean, Russia and Poland, obviously that's been cancelled. So Poland have got their bye to the next round. So they await the winner of Sweden or Czech Republic. So that one, you've got a solid European team that will eventually make it. I mean, Poland, Sweden, Czech, they've all got history of being at, being at the World Cup and being able to do well. So you, you would, nothing too surprising there. Path A for me, now that's the one so you've got Wales versus Austria on one side, and then you've got Scotland versus Ukraine on the other side. Now, obviously, with the Ukraine situation, what they've requested and UEFA has agreed to is to move that match to June in hope that things will kind of calm down or simmer themselves down or maybe play in a neutral ground. They haven't decided on that yet. But seeing the likes of Wales have an opportunity to be in the World Cup, seeing Scotland being have an opportunity there as well, that's quite tantalizing. But then you've got the romanticism of what's happening with Ukraine right now. I mean, I think the entire world of football celebrates when Yamalenko scores a goal. So it's got so many nice... I think Path B is a little bit standard Europe, solid team. But Path A, besides the Path C that's been spoken about just now, that's another one to look out for. I, for one, hope that Ukraine make it. Uh, I think it'd be a really nice story. 
Unfortunately, Russia won't be there, but Ukraine making it would be a nice one for me. So uh, the thing is, we got to wait for a couple of months. So most of the, the semifinal ties take, care, take, take the place in March. And then I believe the finals take place in June. So you've got a, got a few months to get through this. But yeah, it's going to be exciting to watch anyway. Uh, Nicholas, you've got just a couple of minutes, uh, if that, to just sit in judgment and tell us who the winners are of all these things, that all these matches that, uh, that Keish and Arvin have just talked about. Um, I'm going to bring you back um, to a local context. Um, the Malaysian national team oh. um, un- have undergone um, a change in, um, in a coaching and management setup. Um, and they are going to be playing a series of friendly matches against the Philippines, Singapore, and uh, Alberex Negata. So um, watch out for the Malaysian national team. Uh, we did not do well in the AFF Cup. There's a lot of things that have transpired that have changed. Uh, we brought in a coach from South Korea. We've got a complete new coaching setup. We've got a best squad. Um, and if the national team does well, then it sort of revives the interest in Malaysian football because we have a huge Asian Cup qualifiers that is also happening in June, right here in Kuala Lumpur. So, yeah, big, big week for Malaysian football. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I feel ashamed. I should, I should, I should have done that. But uh, we're really actually out of time. But Keish, Malaysian football is this a brave new world? Are we at a, a new dawn here? Uh, I, I, I'd like to speak with similar levels of optimism. Uh, but obviously, there was a lot of neg- negativity around how the previous head coach um, left his post, even though he was easily one of the best head coaches Malaysia has had in a very long time now, Tan Cheng Ho. Um, so I'm being very cautious about the Kim Pangon. Um, appointment um, because of the nature of the appointment, how quickly it was decided. Um, I don't know if he necessarily fits uh, the style of play, but we'll see. We'll see. At the moment, ultimately, as Malaysian fans, we want the best for the national team, um, but they'll be up against a very difficult um, Philippines side to beat. And just one thing before I wrap things up Philippines will finally have their Bundesliga star, Garrett Hopman, in the squad for this one. He plays for VFL Bochum, scored against Bayern Munich. And he's going to be a part of the Philippines national team when they play Malaysia. So that brings us to the end of this week's uh, Monday show, Off the Ball. And I'd like to thank uh, Nicholas Anil. Yes, Kim. Arvin Sidhu. Thank you, everyone. Rock and roll. And Kishnan Sundaresan. Cheers, guys. Enjoy the week. And please join us on Friday with a very sad Bob Holmes uh, here uh, on BFM 89.9. Where's the try? And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.